Fasten your seatbelts, bingers. I've got a wild ride for you today. I'm joined in this episode by one of my absolute favorite human beings in the world. His energy is contagious, and his heart is as big as they come. Please welcome my dear friend, Patrick Hines. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Patrick, we I, I just got on the phone with you. We just dis- we we did about thirty seconds of pre-interview <laughs> where we discussed the fact that we have never actually had a conversation together, and I am more excited than you can imagine to have this chat. Thank me too. I have been such a fan of yours since Serial Dynasty. I will never forget when I found Serial Dynasty, and I was like. <gasps> and I just like consumed it over and over and over again and I've been with you ever since. Oh, that's all I appreciate that, you know, especially if you if you I always tell people if you survived through the serial dynasty days, <laughs> then, then you're a, a true fan. I remember when you went to like when you actually had your studio built. Like I remember I I am a fan from the beginning. That that's awesome. I pre, I pre, you know and I I don't consume a lot of true crime podcasts mostly due to time restraints. Right, of course. I hadn't had the, the 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 pleasure of listening to much of yours, and, and part of what's really awesome about this season is I'm getting to like check out like my fellow true crime podcasters' content. Yes, and I love your show, you and Jillian, oh, thank so much. You. you know that really means so much. I've said this before that like when we started True Crime Obsessed, I really I did not know if there would be a place for me in the world of true crime podcasting. I, one of the reasons I started it was because I loved your show so much and I really loved um, Crime Writers On and I, I really just wanted to like get in the game and then, but I was like, I'm this like queeny, screamy gay guy. I don't know if there's going to be like, I don't know how the world is going to embrace me on this front. And so to hear you say that is a very, very like, wow, that really means a lot to me. Oh my God. I love it. it you know, it, it's, it's so, it's so very different from, you know, everything's so you know, deep voice and and serious guy, right on 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 my pocket, and that's a lot of true crime. Yeah, and you you guys find a way to, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about your background because you guys find a way somehow to make the experience fun. And I know there's there's people that are like, <laughs> well, it shouldn't be fun. You're talking about right. tragedy, but right. I think you know, coming from the fire service, you know, that's we deal with horrible, awful things, and we get through that with humor a lot. So yeah, you know. I related so much, and 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 Patrick, after after listening to one of your episodes on today's case, we're going to cover is the Menendez case. Yeah, I you are you are my spirit animal. <laughs> Every time you call a a cis male girl, <laughs> it <laughs> it lights my world on fire. You know that is so nice. Thank you for saying that. I you know the one thing that I will say is that. When Jillian and I sat down to make True Crime Obsessed, we really, we really, at least for me in my heart, I wanted to make a very straightforward, very calm sort of like uh, true crime podcast where we talked about like true crime current events. And then we would also talk about like, you know, an episode of a show or a documentary that we had seen that we wanted to talk about. But it was all going to be very serious and very NPR style and very like straightforward. And 
When we started to record our pilot episode, we were talking about that documentary, The Imposter. And Jillian just, we didn't know each other that well. We were new friends. I didn't really know she was so funny. And she just started cracking me up. And I remember thinking it was totally inappropriate and not what we wanted to do. And then I, I was listened back to it as I was editing it. And I realized that like everything that we find the humor in, it's either we're either super mad about how mad that we're getting and that's funny. Or it's like the idiot prosecutor who's like the bad guy anyway, or, you know, whatever. And, and when I realized that we were really finding humor in how, how engrossed we were in the story and how much we were feeling the victim's pain and how much we were, you know, like really um, invested and in, in, in like the good coming out of it, I was like, okay, I guess this can work. And I think the reason, like neither Jillian or I think that we're funny at all. And like when we'll do live shows, like, We'll have an audience of a thousand people and we'll stand backstage and look at each other like they're expecting us to make them laugh. We're not funny. What are we going to do? You know, and then we get out there and we just have this chemistry and somehow it just works. But it is, you know, it's not at all what we set out to make. You know, and the chemistry works so well. As I was listening to it, all I was thinking is, I don't know if this is incredible editing. It's not what it sounds like. What it sounds like is that you guys have that chemistry. The back and forth dialogue is so <laughs> snappy and so fast, and yeah. you guys flow together. So I'm like, how in the? He- I've done a lot of podcasts with a lot of people. I've never been able to have that quick and fast of a conversation back and forth seamlessly like the way you guys do. It's incredible. That is so nice of you to say. I will say, these our ed- our episodes are edited within an inch of their lives. Like. We will, <laughs> we'll do things where like, you know, we'll try a joke and it didn't land. So we'll try it again. Nothing is scripted. So we're kind of just like having a conversation and one of us will be like, oh, that was funny. But wait, it'd be funnier if you do it this way or, you know, or, or, you know, we'll go back sometimes and, and like rework a section if we feel like we didn't like get our point across. And so thank you for saying that it is for sure super edited. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's seamless. Absolutely <laughs> thank seamless. Thank you. So, so w- tell me a little bit about your guys' background. Like, like, where did you come from, and how did you end up being true crime? Po- one of the most popular true crime podcasters <laughs> out there. Yeah, thanks. I that's just to hear you say that. It's like I'm dizzy. I, you know, both Jillian and I came from the Broadway podcasting world. So I started podcasting in like 2009, I think, and I had just I had found a Broadway podcast that I loved, and they I was new to listening to podcasts. I didn't know much about them. The guy stopped making it, and I was like, well, if nobody else is going to do this, I guess I'll just do it. And so I will. I, I remember buying sound equipment and trying to figure out how to use it. I am still trying to figure out. Like, I'm sitting in this, like, fancy podcast booth that we finally had built. Like, the guy who made the Gimlet Studio, like, we hired him to make our studio because I was like, we need to sound like real podcasters. I literally don't know how 90% of the stuff in here works. <laughs> um, I'm just a dummy who's, like, loud and laughs a lot. But, you know, I did Broadway podcasts for a long time, and I really just, I am obsessed with podcasts. Just any, I really like true crime, I, but I really like political podcasts. I really like NPR, Smarty Pants podcasts. I just love podcasts, and I love podcasters. And, you know, I, I was, um, I started making a little bit of money as a podcast. I was a podcaster. I was, uh, I had sort of gotten myself hired to do, uh, to make podcasts for a company called Today Ticks. And then I got a, a job and I, uh, you know, just like a regular nine to five job. And I got laid off from the job. And my husband just said to me, like, 
you know, I think you really need to try, make a go of this podcasting thing. You know, you love it. Nothing else is going to make you as happy as this. It was before we had a kid and we could sort of take a chance like that. Um, And we just kind of went for it. And Jillian and I just were brand new at True Crime Obsessed. And we just worked really hard. And, you know, and and somehow we just, and here we are. I mean, that's kind of just what happened. Like, we became obsessed with the show and obsessed with getting it out there and really just trying to like get in front of anybody who would listen and yeah. And, and so we've just grown and grown and grown. And now here we are. What was that, the conversation like when you either, did you approach Jillian or she approached you and you said, let's, let's make this not just because you said you were doing Broadway podcast work that say, let's do a true crime podcast. How'd that conversation go? Whose idea was it? Yeah. I mean, I think it was both of ours. So Jillian makes and still makes a very popular Broadway podcast called the Hamill cast, which is all about, it's like the official Hamilton podcast. It's wonderful. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we met through that world. I had been making Broadway podcasts for a couple of years. And when she started, I, I didn't know her. And I just reached out to her and said, I've been here for a while. If I can help you in any way, just let me know. Um, and we ended up getting together for drinks. And, and then we just started hanging out. And I always say that, like, making a new friend when we were, like, I was in my late 30s when Jillian and I met, like, it's kind of unusual to meet a person especially we're both married. I had a kid at that point. And we were like, all of a sudden, like this new good friend in my life. And I really wanted to invest in it because I hadn't made a new friend in a long time. And Mm -hmm. so we would see each other and we both loved true crime. We were both obsessed with the movie, the, uh, the movie Zodiac. And we, our original idea was we were gonna, we were at a bar. We're just drinking where I was like, let's make a true crime podcast. And Jillian suggested that we make a podcast. And this is not a joke. We were going to solve the Zodiac. We were going to solve it. Like, we were going to, like, re- somehow reinvestigate this thing on our own. We got, like, one day into it. I was like, girl, I don't think this is, I don't think we have time to solve the Zodiac. I'm sorry, world. <laughs> and so then we, yeah, and that was just kind of how True Crime Obsessed was born. It just sort of, like, started at a bar, and then we just sort of put microphones in front of us, and we're, we're still just. We it kind of still feels like we're hanging out at the bar talking about our favorite you know true crime documentary. Yeah, and that's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. What What did you guys? What was your guys' profession, or what did you guys do before you started doing podcasts? So I was I had been in the service industry forever because I had been a writer before I was a podcaster. So I gotten a couple books published, but in the LGBTQ space, so like there wasn't a lot of money to be made. Um, and so I had been a bartender for ten years, and then. The last like five years before I actually was able to like quit and make a living as a podcaster, I was um, a hotel concierge. It was actually a job I really loved. I worked at the at the W Hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Um, I got to see like a ton of Broadway shows for free and eat at restaurants for free, and it was really, really, really fun. I'm a very I don't know if you can tell this about me, but I'm a very like outgoing person. You're kidding. And so, Having a job where I got to like talk to people all the time and tell them about New York City, which is my home, and I just love so much, was great. And Jillian, you know, she had done, she was like a voiceover actress and she's done, um, she was an actor as well. And she, you know, made a web series and she was like also just sort of trying to make it in the entertainment business when this sort of came about. That's awesome. What a cool story. There's so many, one thing that I'm learning from, you know, because podcasting, you know, hasn't been around for all that long, you know, yeah. it's, it's been kind of semi-popular for, you know, 10, 11 years and it got more popular around 2014, but yeah. There's so many of us that make our living doing this in a in, in a in a job that didn't exist when I know a lot of us graduated high school. To, to completely, I know it's crazy. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it's not, now, all right, the last question I want to ask you on the personal level before we yeah. get into our case today is, you said you were a bartender for a long time. I have, I have a very specific drink that, that I like. What is it? It gets messed up more than any other drink that I've ever ordered. I was really good, Bob. Tell me what the drink was, and I'll tell you exactly how it's made. All right, it's not that complicated. Uh-huh. How would you make if I just walked up and said I want a Woodford Reserve Manhattan? Of course. How do you make it? So that that's literally my favorite drink in the world, except I do love Woodford, but I probably would go with Makers because I'm just a basic bitch. <laughs> so the the Manhattan, of course, it's like just a shit ton of bourbon, a, about an ounce, maybe an ounce and a half of sweet vermouth, a little bit of a a, a shake of a dash of bitters, and then you got to stir that shit, Bob. You can't shake there it. it. Is. You Thank can't you. bruise the bourbon. It's like what kind of what kind of amateurs are we dealing with here? I, I get so upset when I order, especially at a nice bar, and I of order course. Manhattan, and they shake it up, and it's no. all frothy and chunks of ice in it. I know. I got to tell you, the best cocktail city in America, I, and I'm sure I'm going to get hell for this, but the best cocktail city in America is Boston, Massachusetts. They, they, Boston takes their restaurants super seriously, and they take their cocktails super seriously. When I would go to my like little spot for my Manhattans, the guy, the bartender, would take like an, a piece of like a fresh orange peel and do like a flash, light it on fire, and then drop it into the drink. Ooh. I know. It's fancy. That's the kind of effort that I'm looking for in a bartender. <laughs> exactly. It's like the best job in the world, you guys. It's being a bartender, you just got to get good at it. That's all. That's all there is to it. That's right. And you have passed the test. So now <laughs> I that I trust exactly you. What the, I knew exactly where we were going when I, when I heard Manhattan. Stirred, <laughs> not shaken, you guys. Well, you, you have earned my trust, so now I trust you <laughs> to talk about today's subject, which yes. is... The Menendez case, and, yeah. and, and and this is a case that, for me, I, th- I think you might be a little bit older than me. For me, this this happened when I was in middle school, and I was going into high school when the trial happened. Yeah, so it was 1989 when it happened. I think the trial was like the next year. So I was, let me think, I graduated high school in 96, so I was probably about the same. What year were you born? Uh, 79. So you graduated one year. Yours is a year ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born in 78. So yeah, we were about the same age when this happened. Yeah. So you know, it happened in 89, but then you know, the trial actually wasn't until 93. Oh. Remember a, a couple years years passed by. Yes. And, so, and it was televised. And it was right. like right after OJ was televised. And it right. Was just, I remember just being fascinated by it. So the, the thing that I learned when I was, I was re-listening to the Mineta's episodes that we did today too, there were two trials and the second one wasn't televised. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, there were two trials. The first televised trial was it ended they they each had separate juries and it ended basically with a hung jury for both. And so they retried the case. It was not televised. So much went down in the decision making by the judge for that second trial that I have such a hard time with that I think really ended with the outcome where we have today that I and again, I hope I get a chance to explain myself so your listeners don't just hate me. But I do think that the outcome, I do think the sentence that these boys are serving is, is, is unfair. Yeah, and I definitely, and that's, that's why I want to have you on and talk about it, because this is a strange case in the fact that no one has any question that these two killed their parents. Yep, exactly. They absolutely did it. But the, you know, I'm sure the reason for the hung jury and why, they're, why it was so, it's a hotly debated case was because of the circumstances. So why don't we start off, Patrick, if you can 
just kind of lay out the beats of the case, you know, what happened, how the trials happened, why, why there's all this controversy around it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the facts of the crime are pretty straightforward, and I think it's what most people know. So it was August 20th, 1989. Uh, Jose and Katie Menendez were sitting on the couch in their den, uh, you know, watching TV or not. We, you know, we don't really know all of the details. And their adult children, Lyle and Eric Menendez, came in with shotguns and killed them. You know, the, what we also know is that the boys, you know, then got it. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to call them the boys. That sounds like a term of endearment, and I don't mean it like that. I should say Eric and Lyle. Then in their telling, they sort of sat on the stairs and waited for the cops to come. I mean, if you think about Beverly Hills, you know, it's a it's a it's not a big place. You would think that like just a rain of shotgun fires would have like alerted the neighbors to call the police. But apparently nobody did. And when the police didn't come, Eric and Lyle got in their car. They they sort of drove around for a while. And they were when they realized that they might get away with this, they say they they went downtown and tried to get tickets to a movie to give themselves an alibi. That didn't really work out. They ended up burying their shotguns uh, somewhere along Mulholland Drive. And then they they went home and called 911. And you can hear the 911 call. You know, Lyle is the one that made the, the 911 call. He said, somebody killed my parents. The police were there in seconds. Eric and Lyle told the cops on the scene that the their parents or their dad was involved with the mafia and that they thought maybe this was a mafia hit. Nobody looked at Eric and Lyle right away uh, for this. Actually, not for a while. They weren't arrested until March 8th, 1989. And so, yeah, I mean, like those are the, those are the, those are the general facts of the crime. And then, you know, as I said, the, the first trial happened. It was televised. I mean, it was like, even as young as we were, I mean, I remember, I remember seeing them and the sweaters were famous and Leslie Abramson, their defense attorney with her, you know, big curly blonde hair. And she was a firecracker in the courtroom. She was famous. They each had their own jury and they, and, and the, the trial ended with a hung jury for both. And Gil Garcetti was the prosecutor. He said they were going to retry them, you know, as quickly as they could. And they did. And, you know, the thing about the first trial was that they the defense was allowed to parade in all of these character witnesses. And, you know, the the other epic thing about the first trial that I think a lot of people remember is seeing Eric and Lyle testifying about the sexual and emotional abuse that they had suffered at the hands of their father, Jose. And I mean, that you can watch that stuff on YouTube. It That that testimony is especially watching it from the lens of 2020, there's no way you can look at that and find it not believable, I think. And, you know, so for the second trial, a lot of the sexual abuse evidence was not allowed. In the first trial, 51 witnesses for the defense, including Jose Menendez's, the dad that was murdered, his own sisters, uh, cousins, people that he worked with, all of them testifying for Eric and Lyle, saying what a monster this guy was. And I, and, and I don't want that to be misunderstood. I don't, there's not any excuse in the world for murder. But just to sort of provide the context of the, of the world that these guys were living in, these 51 witnesses for them, none of them were allowed in the second trial. So none of these witnesses were able to, to give their testimony in the second trial. The sexual abuse evidence, much of it was not allowed. And the jury wasn't allowed to consider the lesser offense of manslaughter. They could only do guilty of uh, murder or not guilty. And that's how we ended up with uh, two guilty verdicts and two life sentences without the possibility of parole. Yeah. And it, 
it's such a, an interesting thing. So that first trial, again, they never denied that they killed their parents. Right. At the trial. Yeah. And essentially, the I think the juries were hung because, you know, they were, they tugged at their heartstrings and said, well, yeah, they killed them. But based on what they're saying, they killed them because, because of the abuse. And I think a lot of it, the jury in that trial had a hard time convicting these two young men for, yeah. you know, for what almost seemed as though, I, I guess they, it was almost a self-defense strategy that the defense had yeah because you know you know what we covered on true crime obsessed and if your listeners don't know it's a podcast that i make where we recap true crime documentaries so that's sort of we don't do a lot of research outside of the documentary that we're covering for for this interview with you i've done a little bit more research but typically we cover what's in the documentary but you know in so this documentary that we covered was called the menendez murders eric tells all and it's basically eric menendez on a payphone from prison telling his story and in his telling of the story, you know, the sexual abuse that he and his brother had suffered uh, at the hands of their father had been going on since they were little kids and had sort of five days before the murders had sort of just come to light that everyone in the family, the mom, the dad, and the two brothers were talking about it. Lyle had sort of, Eric, the younger brother, had gone to Lyle and said, this is still happening. It's happening all the time. He confronted his dad and the dad exploded. And had always said that if anyone told anyone, he would kill their son. He, he would kill them. And so, you know, Eric's defense now is that the night of the murders, we got into another big fight about the abuse and Lyle was trying to take Eric and leave and the dad wouldn't let them go. And that was when the dad and the mom went into the den and Eric says he felt like they were going, like the parents were going to kill them if they didn't kill the parents. And so it was like a, it was in Eric's telling a, a self-defense, like kill them before they kill us sort of thing. And I mean, that theory has some holes in it. You know, Eric and Lyle had gone and bought the shotguns that they killed their parents with a couple of days before. So, you know, I mean, it was something that was definitely on their minds. But the, the level of abuse that the boys, I'm sorry, I don't want, I don't mean to keep saying the boys, the level well, of I abuse that, right. yeah, that Eric and Lyle had suffered you know, it was it was tragic. And it's, you know, I do believe that it is what led to the murder of the parents. Yeah, it seems to me that it like I think you saying that there's holes in it makes sense because it, it, it does seem to be that that's what led to them killing their parents. Yeah. If all these abuse allegations are true, which it seems to be the case right. that it was that it was true. But yeah, but then the fact that you know, they went and bought the shotguns ahead of time. And then just the the details of the murders, you know, like the, you know, the, the crime scene reconstruction from what I've read, you know, it looked like they, they shot her in the leg. She took yeah. off running. She slipped on her own blood, fell. They blew their kneecaps off yep. and then multiple shots. So I, I can see where the self-defense argument kind of goes away. And it's like, well, if you were worried about them killing you first and they're laying on the ground bleeding with, with their kneecap shot off, surely you could have exited the premises by that point. Yeah. You weren't in danger anymore. Right. And it's it's hard. You know, there's another expert in the documentary who says that, like, the, you know, when when you are subjected to the the kind of abuse that these kids were subjected to, and they were kids when the abuse happened, they were adults when they committed the murders. What, you know, you can't imagine that you can ever escape it. Right. Like you can't. There is no way out. But uh, but an outcome like this, where the perpetrator of the abuse is killed. That's that's your only way out. I don't know if that's true or not. I just, you know, for me, the the for me, the most unfair part of this is that the jury in the second trial wasn't allowed to consider 
you know, a manslaughter defense, you know, for or, or a, a manslaughter conviction for for the, for Lyle and Eric because it seems like they these guys really really did suffer. Obviously, murder is wrong, and if you commit murder, you need to go to jail for a very long time. But the idea that they could never get out, I mean, especially Eric, when you learn of what, you know, the kind of man he's become in prison, you know, where he's mentoring, he's been through all of the, you know, the NAs and the AAs, and he's mentoring other men, you know, who have suffered like that. He's raising dogs in in prison for, you know, a, a program. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know that it serves. I don't know that I would be afraid that they would commit a murder like this again if they if they were released. In fact, I can say I don't think that they would be a danger to society. That's a question that I wrestle with a lot is, you know, our, our system, if you compare it to other countries, places like Norway is a, yeah. is a great example where the, the, the prison system is, is meant to be to is, is, is there for rehabilitation. Yeah. Ours doesn't seem to be, you know, it, it, it's, it's punitive. We're punishing them. And, and I think that needs to be there to an extent, but yeah, they didn't go out and randomly kill somebody they're not necessarily a risk to society they killed their parents uh, presumably at least according to them because of this abuse it would be nice to see not not getting outside of the menendez brothers but just kind of in general we can talk about a little bit our prison system in general i would love to see you know through the work that i've done i've really seen you know there was a time in my life where i didn't really look at people in prison as I didn't humanize them at all. You know, yeah. it was just like, well, they're criminals and that's where they belong. Fuck right. them. Right. But yeah, it, as I've gotten to, you know, to, to know many people in prison, both innocent and guilty, it's like, you know, there should be a way for them to reform and rehabilitate and reenter society and, and give the, and I think the prisons would be a better place if right. the people in prison knew, you know what, if I behave myself, if I better myself, there's a chance that I could get another chance at life. But when you send somebody away for life without parole, then, you know, th- there's what's the point in in doing anything? So when you got a guy like Eric Menendez who, knowing that he's never going to get out of prison, still makes the effort to better himself. It, it's it's For me, it's tough to think that that's really not going to matter other than for him, his own personal internally. It's not going to matter because he's never going to get another chance at life. I know, you know, and and in thinking about Maggie Freeling's podcast, right? The the episode that that came out this week is about uh, a a man named David Thorne, and part of his story was that he you know, he's can you know likely wrongfully convicted of a murder and in jail for forever and ever, and you know he wanted to go like he wanted to go back to school in jail, you know, in prison the way a lot of people do, and he was told he wasn't allowed to because what's the point? You're going to be here, you're going to die in here. Why should we try to? rehabilitate you or educate you in any way it's not going to make any difference and it's like wow you know when people go to prison in this country we really are throwing them away you know we really are saying you are not entitled to any quality of life and there are monsters out there absolutely you know but it's it's just it's been it's always been my it, it's just always been my philosophy on these kinds of things and my my feeling on capital punishment like what kind of society do we want to be you know and I, you know, I even if even if you know a, a person is in prison rightfully and had committed a monstrous act, and but like does want to, in whatever way is possible, you know, reform and show remorse and you know do better in prison. I'm not saying that that person should ever be free to roam the streets again, but like, should we provide some quality of life for human beings? 
I think we should. Yeah, yeah, I do too. You know, the, the prisoners, a lot of times, especially with the privatized prisons in America, they're, they're almost treated like animals. You know, I, I right. do a lot of work in Texas and mm-hmm. you know, it, it gets hot in Texas. And yeah. one thing that, that whenever I'm talking to any of the inmates, and I have several that I speak with regularly from Texas prisons in the summertime, they're mis- it's, it's 120 degrees. There's no air conditioning. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's like, it, you know, the, the, the food, even with this COVID, you know, we actually had the reason we're doing this, this season, the way we're doing it is because we got stuck in a place where we couldn't really move on to another case. Right. Records divisions being closed. And our season eight case, uh, Deb Perringer died in prison, died of COVID. Oh God. While she was in prison and, and they're, they're not giving them the proper treatment. They're not taking care of them. It's like, I just, I don't think that prison, our prisons should be a place where we just send people, lock them up, throw away the key and for, forget it. Especially when we're talking, there's a lot of nonviolent offenses, things there, there, there should be something good should come out of, you know, I look at it in, in you, you have, you have a child. Yeah. You know, when they get in trouble, they get punished, but you try to, I try to make the punishment a learning experience for them. Right. Exactly. And I always end up offering them parole. Right. Always. <laughs> right. Exactly. The thing about the Menendez case, too, is that, like, the narrative that got written about them and about what happened really isn't accurate. And it was the narrative I fully believed until we until we covered these, you know, the six episodes of this documentary. Because, I mean, like I said, you know, we were young. You know, we were just watching the news. We were reading the papers. We weren't, you know, critically thinking about things. And it's just as, it's just sad to me that, like, these guys are just rotting away in jail. When, when really they, you know, they suffered so badly. And one of the attorneys for Eric Menendez actually says in the documentary, Eric likes being in jail. It's the first time in his life he doesn't fear that he's going to get raped at the end of the day or that he's going to get the shit beaten out of him by his dad. Like he actually feels safe in prison. And Mm -hmm. like, that's a, that's a real thing. Yeah, and his brother, didn't Lyle get married in prison? Yeah, they both did. They both did. Oh, they both did. Lyle got married twice, I think. And then Eric's wife is actually in this documentary. And she's amazing. She's, it's, it's a very complicated situation because, you know, she doesn't have rose-colored glasses about, about the, about, even about Eric. Like, you know, like her husband is in prison and he's not necessarily an easy guy, you know? And it's like her life, she's now committed to this person. She moved to the town where the prison is to be near him so she can see him. But it's, you know, it's really hard. They, I mean, I think Eric was like 22, 23 when he went to jail for the rest of his life. And I know it sounds insane to say, like, to not be saying, yeah, but they shotgunned their parents in the living room of their house. Like, of course they should be in prison. And of course they should be in prison. I just think that, like, I don't think that the jury of their peers were given all of the uh, circumstances surrounding what led to the, to the murder to be able to give them a fair punishment. Do you know why or what reasoning the judge used to ban all of that testimony about the abuse in the second trial? You know, I don't. I and I don't know that they go into it. I mean, I you know, the judge in the in the first trial, and I'm not even sure if it was the same judge for the second trial. Although I think it was, uh, had a very contentious relationship with Leslie Abramson there, uh, he, who was Eric's lawyer. Lyle had a, had another lawyer, but he had a very contentious relationship with her. I mean, at the end of the day, I I think that like. He his reasoning is is largely, you know, 
he was like an old white man. And they were saying that like a, a lot of the old white men on the jury and on the prosecution in 1993 just simply could not believe that a man like Jose Menendez would sexually abuse and rape his male children. I think that the idea is that men of a certain age at that time just must have seen that as a lie because there's no way they could believe that that could happen. Yeah, that may, and it makes me wonder, I wonder how the trial would have shaken out in 2020 where right. I think in, in general the world is a little more enlightened about things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think about that too and, you know, and I... I mean, I'm certain there would have been a different outcome. You know, I'm, I'm certain the boys were just the boys. I keep Bob. I keep saying that. I, I feel like I'm a true crime obsessed where I do say things like that with wild abandon. But because I'm talking to you, I feel like I have to behave like a grown up. I, I, I think you're going to be just fine. I think I don't think anybody's going to hold it against you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I um, oh, what was I even? I don't even remember what I was saying, but, I, you know, I, I oh, they just weren't believed like these guys. They like. They just weren't believed. And that was the thing that was so compelling about the first trial was all of these witnesses, the cousins who were like, yeah, I was there. It was known that when Jose would take both of his teenage sons into the shower and they would all shower together and you would hear the screaming, you weren't even allowed to go on the floor. And that story was corroborated by another cousin who had stayed at the house on separate occasions and had experienced the same thing. You know, so it was like, we knew this was true. There's, there was another cousin who testified that uh, Eric had told him at when Eric was 14 years old about like the massaging that his dad would do to him and that he was literally mas- massaging his genitals and being told that was normal. And Lyle and Eric asked the cousin, is that normal? And the cousin testified to that in court. So we know they were telling people about the sexual abuse they were suffering all of their lives. And either people didn't believe them or they didn't think there was anything they could do to help them. Well, I wonder if some of it is the, you know, the other side of the, of the discussion is, you know, how they got arrested. Cause you know, almost a year went by and, you know, they were, they were spending money from what I've read. I don't know. I've heard different accounts, but yeah. it seems like they're saying they had spent like $700,000 yeah. of their parents' money. And so, you know, the, there was the other side of the argument is, well, you know, they're using this abuse as their excuse, but really right. they just wanted the money. What are your what are your thoughts on the on the on the the competing motives? So according to Eric, and we do see sort of a breakdown of this, you know, they sort of do show us the receipts in the documentary. He says Lyle spent over three hundred thousand dollars and Eric spent about nine thousand dollars. I do think that Eric and Lyle had a different experience and potentially even motive. Like, you know, I don't doubt at all that uh, Lyle, the older brother, also suffered sexual abuse at the hands of his father. But I, I think as being the older kid, I think Lyle was even angrier and even more potentially messed up than even Eric was at 18 when this all happened. And so, you know, I, I, I there's no question that money was spent. And but I don't think I, I think both things can be true at the same time. I think that they could be kids who didn't expect to get away with this murder. And then they did. And now, you know, they've been suffering this abuse for a long time. And so now they're sort of like living the high life and sort of spending money like crazy and sort of, you know, doing all of that. And the abuse allegations can also be true. Yeah, I, I think you're right. That's, that, that's, that's my feeling on it as well, is that I don't necessarily think the money played into the plan. Yeah. But then afterwards, and it was like, you know, holy shit, we got away with it. And we have all this money now. So let's right. live it up. 
And Eric says another catalyst for all of this was that Eric was going to UCLA and he or USC, one one of the state schools in Los Angeles. And he had gotten accepted and he had a dorm and he was very excited to be getting out of his father's house and away from the abuse. And just days before he was set to leave for school, his father told him that, like, in fact, he would be spending several nights a week at home. And so he wasn't actually going to get away. And that, you know, that is another contributing factor that Eric says that, like, he just knew he like now was the time that he had to get away at any by any means necessary. Yeah. And you can see how that 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 the the buildup where where they finally snapped. And yeah, I think that when when someone's suffering that kind of abuse, too, it it has to affect their psyche in a way to where it's the the crimes were extremely gruesome. They didn't just shoot him one time, you know. Right. It, it, it was pretty bad, but you can almost see in the how the crime scene played out that it was years and years of anger and rage all just coming out at once. Yeah, yeah, and you know, one of the attorneys in the documentary says, and I and I agree that like childhood sexual abuse is not an excuse for murder. I totally agree. I just think that you know a life sentence without the possibility of parole is just not the right sentence. Yeah. So if if you had as, as we're we're coming close to to wrapping this up, yeah. If 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 you were king of the world and you had the and and you got to wave the magic wand as to what happened right now in 2020, you know these guys have have been in prison now for what almost almost 20 years. Yeah. No longer, almost 30 years, I think. Right? If they went in 93. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yep. Yeah. Almost 30 years. So. What would you, if if you could, if if they if they came before your court and you got to decide, okay, what is the rest of their sentence? What what do you think should happen, or what do you think should have happened back then? You know, I'm not enough of a legal mind to know what the options are. You know, I mean, I I think one of the ideas that was floated in the in the documentary that I that sounded appropriate to me was 25 years, and then we evaluate. You know, we see were they. You know, were they, what were they like in prison? Were they dangerous? Are they demonstrating violent tendencies? You know, if not, and, and I don't know how the, how the process works. I'm, I'm hesitant to say like 25 years and then let them go. You know, I, I would like there to be a, you know, the parole process where they are, you know, they are vetted to see if they are worthy of parole. And if they are, then I would say, give them parole, you know, and if they don't check in, if they don't, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's, they go back to jail. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's reasonable that, you know, it, it, at some point after 30 years to give them an opportunity to, to live their lives. Because as you said, it's, it's, it's not an excuse for murder, but at the same time, it's something that you can understand. You know, I, right. I have been, you know, luckily I've never experienced that kind of abuse, but, you know, I've, I've studied a lot of it in, in my line of work and, and you can, I, I can understand why someone would get to that point And I'd like to hope that after they've they've quote paid for their crime that they have a chance to to get out and rehabilitate yeah um before wait before we end can i take a super right turn and ask you a question absolutely Uh, can we talk about don for five minutes okay sure yeah (laughs) i I forgot you wanted to talk about it not oh yeah so what what do we want to talk about don so okay are are, am I allowed to ask you like are you on the record as saying you think that don is the killer of Heyman lee I think that, um, and for those of you, I'm sure none of you are in this boat, but in case you are, we're talking about <laughs> our season one case, the, the, the serial case, Anand Syed. Yeah. I think that, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I think Don did it. I think that there is an overwhelming amount of evidence that was overlooked and missed by police 
that points to Dawn. Mm-hmm. And if I was going back to ground zero to investigate the case, which is what I did during during season one and was able to uncover how the police missed it, which mm-hmm. was for those of you that hadn't listened, listened to it, you know, that, that there was actually, there were steps taken to protect Don for yeah. sure by his parents. You know, the police didn't know that his stepmom was the manager that alibied him. They didn't mm-hmm. know that his, his biological mother was the manager at the other store. So between the two stores, it was covered, you know, his alibi was covered. And this is very simple. You know, when you look at the case, forget everything you know about Adnan mm-hmm. and look at the witnesses that talk to, hey, what did they all say? Where was she going after school? Yeah. Right. Going to see Don. Yeah. They all said she was going to see Don. Yeah. And then you have Don disappears and the police can't get a hold of him until the middle of the night. And then you have multiple interviews where he doesn't say anything about work. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, he was at work. His stepmom alibis him. And then, then later, when the defense finally tries to pull his timesheets, the timesheets come and like, nope, he wasn't at work. And it's like, oh, wait, look, with a different employee ID number, there's another time card yep. that says that he, he was at work that was signed off again by his mother, who shortly after that lost that job. We right. didn't, nobody knows why, but she wasn't there anymore shortly after that, after that happened. So I, I think he fits the profile of the killer. I think that all of the evidence that I've come across points directly at him. I, I can't say that, yes, he did it. Maybe there's you know another explanation for this, but if I'm the lead investigator and it's 1999, mm-hmm. he's my lead suspect. And what do you think his motive would be? I, this is sheer speculation just based on, you know, I, stu- I spent a year studying him, yeah. you know, in his, in his background. You know, I've talked to people that worked with him at LensCrafters. I've talked to people that went to high school with him. And I, I think that Don was, I, I think he was, he was a very unpopular kid at school. The people that I talked to that he went to school with said mm-hmm. that he was, you know, he was what we would kind of describe. I don't even know if it's a thing anymore today, but, you know, they used to say the emo kids, you know, he was. Yeah just dark and a loner and, yep. you know, when somebody tried to talk to him, he kind of snapped at him, sat by himself at lunch, that kind of kid. So I think he he never had any kind of popularity and he never had a lot of friends. And then, you know, he gets out of high school and and he works on himself. You know, he get, gets in better shape, loses some weight. He dyes his hair blonde. And also now he's got this high school girlfriend that, you know, very pretty high school girlfriend. Yep. and uh, my theory hypothesis based surely on speculation just just based on kind of analyzing in my unprofessional opinion his his you know behaviors and personality and doing the same with hay i think that what happened was that they were meeting at a motel close to the school campus for you know a little afternoon delight yeah. after school before she had to pick up her her niece and i think it may have very well been his first sexual encounter or that he was not very experienced. And it, yeah. it seems, seems to me the, I don't think there was a motive as in he planned to kill her. Yeah. I think that one of two things happened, either something embarrassing happened during that encounter and he snapped or based on, you know, one potential analysis of Hayes diary where she was writing Don's name all over the place. And then we know that Adnan calls and she writes Adnan's call on the paper. Yeah. And then she writes, I miss my baby. Which it's it's speculation, but to me, you know, the one the person she called baby all the time was Adnan. Yeah, that perhaps there was a conversation like, "I need to break up with you. I still love Adnan." Yeah, or I miss Adnan or something like that. But I think either one of those two are 
are possibilities. Again, based surely on speculation. Wow. There was a minute where it, I thought ID was going to make a whole documentary about Don. Like, I feel like I even saw a trailer for it, but nothing's ever come of it. I, I've heard that, and I know that um, the HBO documentary that Rabia did yep. was, was supposed to, was going to have some focus on, on Don. I actually worked with the, uh, the PIs oh, uh, yeah. that helped with that documentary. And then it seems, I think it's very difficult, especially for television, because he won't talk to anybody. Right. You know, he won't do any interviews and it's just, you know, even with, even if it's a podcast, anytime, any kind of content you're trying to create, if, if you don't have the person that you want to speak with speaking and you're just talking about him, it, it yeah. becomes less interesting. Yeah. Uh, I am endlessly fat. Every time I see Rabia, I'm like, let's talk about Don. <laughs> <laughs> I'm endlessly. That's the same conversation I have with Rabia most of the time when we <laughs> <I> see <know>. each other. <laughs> Poor Rabia. She's such a she's such a good, kind soul. She is. So all right, Patrick, I'm gonna wrap this up because I gotta I gotta go pick my kid up and take okay. him to the orthodontist. But be, uh before we do, the podcast is true crime obsessed, and you have now expanded you have the obsessed network. So if you can real yes. quick talk a little bit about that and, and what other shows uh under the obsessed no- network our audience can check out. Yeah. So uh okay, so the obsessed network, uh we launched it with True Crime Obsessed. Our first spinoff was called Obsessed with Abducted in Plain Sight, which I made with Sky Borgman, who directed the film Abducted in Plain Sight. It's a four-part documentary podcast where we sort of go back through, re-interview people, get all the deep dives and all the stories that got left out of the film. I also make Obsessed with Disappeared with my best friend of 20 years, Ellen Marsh, which is uh, an episode-by-episode comedic recap of IDs Disappeared, which is all about missing people. We have Maggie Freeling's new show, which is called Unjust and Unsolved. Each episode sort of dives into a case of a person who has been wrongfully convicted, uh, tells their story, sort of relooks at the crime, points at new potential witnesses. Um, it's a real solid piece of investigative journalism and true crime storytelling and activism. It's brilliant, and Maggie is incredible. And we have a, a new podcast coming out at the end of October with Amber Hunt. It's called Crimes of the Centuries. And Amber basically does a deep, deep dive on crimes that were Really big when they happen, but have sort of been lost to history. Um, And that's a weekly podcast coming out in October. And then we have another podcast launching in January, which I can't talk about yet, but it's going to be very exciting, I promise. Well, that's awesome. You guys are doing great work. Love the show, and you've you've definitely been added to my queue for when I when I'm mowing my grass and I actually have a minute to listen. I am now true crime obsessed. Uh, well, Bob, I'm obsessed with you. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to do this. It's a real honor to get to talk to you. It was, it was my pleasure. It was great to talk to you, too. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. 
We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.